0: Well, please uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is where we will be, verses 16 and 17 today. We're continuing our series through this marvelous book, and we've run into a couple of uh, marvelous verses here. 2 Corinthians five sixteen and 17. I'll read these and then pray, and uh, we'll start talking about them. 5.16. It says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Father, we thank you for this amazing text, a wonderful memory verse for us that reminds us of the newness of life in salvation. We ask that you would bless our pondering today as we think about this verse that you've given us. And Lord, we ask too that though I am a fallen man, that I would not get in the way this morning but that your word would be clear to your people, that you would anoint me to preach and to handle the word of God accurately. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we do have an interesting pair of verses today, don't we? 16 and 17, you may have noticed, both start with the word therefore. That's kind of interesting. Usually therefore is like the final statement that someone makes on any given subject, but here we have two therefores in a row. And what we're going to see in this passage today is that Paul is getting to the heart of gospel-driven living. He has a correction for this church, the Corinthian church, but Paul doesn't just give corrections willy-nilly. He gives corrections based on something. And what we're going to see in this text is that his correction that he's offering them is based on the gospel. He's giving them a corrective way to think based on the gospel they have believed. Now, I want us to remember a little bit of the sequence of events. I know that Paul has had a long history with this church and it's hard to remember all of the interactions that he's had and the coming and going that Paul has experienced, the Corinthians have experienced. But I just want to remind you a little bit of what his past has been with this church. He was, of course, the uh, church planter in Acts chapter 18. You can read about the start of this very church, and it was started by Paul the Apostle. But remember that the last time Paul was there with these people, it was a bad visit. Paul didn't have a great time. They uh, maybe didn't even sing any hymns together like we just did to express any unity. It was just a, a painful visit. That's how Paul describes it. And you know what it's like, I'm sure, to leave a bad meeting You have a bad meeting with someone, perhaps there are tears, perhaps there's anger. Maybe a chair flew across the room. I don't know how intense your meetings get. Uh, But to have to leave a meeting like that just is a little bit unsettling. There's no closure there. And that's what Paul has experienced. He left this church after a bad, painful visit. But then his brother Titus, that young man... Came to find him, and Titus had visited with the Corinthians, and he had encouraging news. Many of them had started to change their heart toward Paul. Many of them had started to love Paul again from the heart. But not all of them. There were still several people in that church who did not like Paul. They were affected by not only their own sinful desires, but they were affected by false teachers. Super apostles, Paul calls them, mockingly in a way, who came in after Paul, stirring up more division, talking smack about Paul behind his back. And so this letter of 2 Corinthians is a a striking mix between I love you and you need to grow up, if I were to sum it up in scholarly terms. That's what's happening in this letter of 2 Corinthians. And there were still false false apostles at this church, false teachers, trashing Paul's character. So another purpose of this letter is Paul's defense of his ministry. We see it over and over again. Almost every chapter, Paul will have to make a statement where he clarifies to them that he really is an apostle called by God, that he is a true minister, that he is bringing forth the gospel. He's not bringing forth man's opinion. Over and over again, Paul feels the need to defend himself. And he explains in this section that he's making an appeal to the Corinthians right now for the sake of their pride. We looked at this last week in verse 12. Paul says, we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us. And he didn't mean in the sinful sense. He meant in the good sense. And you have to be really careful about this when it comes to pride. There is a good sense of pride. But I would put forward to you that we deal with the bad sinful pride a lot more, don't we? But here Paul has the good pride in view, and he says we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us, to respect our ministry, to stand up for us when people are talking smack and to say, no, Paul is truly an apostle of God. Why did Paul care so much, you might wonder? After all, if he really was an apostle called by God, given the words of God in this letter, moved by the Holy Spirit to write words from God, why would Paul feel the need to defend himself? I think John MacArthur did a great job summing up that reason in his commentary when he said, The overarching reason Paul defended his integrity, the one that incorporated all the rest, was so that he could continue to reach the lost. He passionately longed to see people come to saving faith in Christ. Paul's burden for the lost moved him to defend his integrity, lest he lose his credibility and with it, his ability to effectively preach the gospel." Paul was always thinking about winning the lost to Christ. And he knew that a bad reputation, his diminished credibility, would have an impact on his missionary journeys. So Paul and company here in this section that we're reading in chapter 5 are defending their ministry as they do often in the letter. And they want the Corinthians to embrace them. Here in just about a month, I'll be leaving on a sabbatical It'll be on a Sunday, I'll take off after the service, Uh, so I can preach whatever I want that day knowing I don't have any consequences for a month, (laughs) and maybe by then you'll forget about it. But can you imagine, while I'm on this month-long sabbatical, and I'm not encouraging anyone to do this, but can you imagine if, while I'm gone, people who take the pulpit or take positions of teaching start talking about my character while I'm away? Start talking about, yeah, that Jeremy. His suits are ugly. (laughs) Who's picking out his suits, Stevie Wonder? (laughs) You'll get it later today. And just his teaching is so abrasive, and it's hard to follow. He jumps all over the place, and man, it's just we're having a hard time, aren't we? You know how these things happen. We're just we we might want to consider making a change. If I were to catch wind of this in God's country, central Missouri, and, and hear you know, what's being said, I would probably be moved to not wait until I get back, but at the very least, shoot off an email, maybe call Tyler. <laughs> what's going on over there? Uh, but that's the position Paul's in here, isn't it? Paul had so much love for this church. He had poured out so much for this church. He had taught this church so much, and he's away. And now the people come in and start whispering criticisms about Paul and his ministry and making people think he's not worthy of listening to. Now, be sure of it that these people did not have a biblical critique of Paul's ministry. I doubt Paul wore suits, but I bet it was on that same level of critiquing what he wore or critiquing the way he spoke, or critiquing, you know, his whatever about his day-to-day life that they just didn't like. They didn't have biblical critiques, they critiqued the outside. And so what Paul is doing here to try to win these Corinthians back is he's pursuing a tactic of appealing to their new nature and how Christians should recognize other Christians. Paul is appealing to the gospel, the common faith that they have Encouraging them to judge rightly with gospel lenses. These false teachers had convinced the Corinthians to judge with worldly judgment. And Paul is bringing them back to the gospel and saying, no, we view everything through the lens of the gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. We looked at these last week. But look at what Paul says. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The centrality of the good news, that Jesus died and Jesus rose again, that's the basis of Paul's correction here. His, his easy, smooth, soft rebuke is really what it is of their thinking. It starts with the gospel. And he's saying that those who have believed the gospel should have sold out lives. The reason why Jesus came, it says in verse 15, was that people would no longer live for themselves, but that they would live for Jesus. That they would live for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. This is where we must start when we consider how to appropriately judge others. How to appropriately evaluate another person's ministry. How to consider somebody else who's being criticized. It starts with the gospel. It doesn't start with worldly judgment. If we were focused solely on judging as the world judges, there's no shortage of material out there. And you could critique anyone and everyone all of the time. But when you go by the word of God, when you start with the gospel, you're actually very limited in your scope about what is most critical, aren't you? Not everything becomes a critical issue. But you have to view things through the lens of this primary truth that Jesus died and rose again on our behalf. The point of the Christian life is to honor Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. The point of our living is to honor the one who died for us, honor the one who rose again for us. The point of our lives isn't to please man. And so, when Paul hears of these Corinthians judgments... He's, of course, discouraged, but I don't think he's phased. He knows that God is his judge. The love of Christ controls him, he says. The fear of man doesn't control him. The love of Christ compels him in his ministry. And so he reminds the Corinthians that you, too, should not be driven by fear of man. You, too, should not be driven by worldly standards. You should be driven by the gospel. This isn't the only place where Paul mentions this in his letter to the Galatians. He speaks to this. Galatians 1.10. Paul writes, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See the dichotomy here? It's, it has to be one or the other. Paul says, If I'm trying to meet the world's standards, to please men, to make people think that I'm great in their eyes, I can't be serving Christ it's one or the other. There's a true watershed here. To the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote something similar. Starting in verse 3, he says, "...for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts." For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. They didn't come with a pretext, they didn't come seeking to please man. They didn't come trying to advance themselves in society's eyes. The apostle and his missionary companions, they came with one purpose, to honor Jesus Christ. There was one theme of their lives, to honor their Savior. For Christians, this has to be the big overarching theme of all that we do in life. It's to honor Jesus Christ whether you've got a job that you think is mundane, whether you have a life that you think is boring, whether you think you're really hot stuff and you've got a really thrilling schedule, no matter what it is, no matter what you have going, the details of your calendar, I don't know what they are, no matter what it is, your number one goal as a believer in Jesus is to honor Him. Your top priority, whether it's changing the oil in your car or changing a diaper, mothers, whatever it is, your top goal has to be to honor Jesus in it. It's all about Jesus. Whether you think church is just for Jesus, or Wednesday nights and church, you know, on Sundays, whatever it is, no matter what your thinking is, be corrected by this today. If if you're off, all of life is for Christ. There are no two ways about it. And so from this outlook on life, We are to evaluate people differently. That's what Paul's getting at. So even when it comes to our evaluation of other people, it has to be with Jesus' lenses. You see, there are two ways that we can evaluate and be evaluated. And Paul starts bringing it up in verse 16. He says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way... No longer. You see the two ways there? The first way is according to the flesh. And that's how people are judged in the world. If you are evaluating others or being evaluated, it's different in the world than it is in the church. In the world, people are evaluated according to the flesh. In the NIV that Rex read from earlier, it says from a worldly point of view. That's what that means. To judge others from a worldly point of view. And that's all based on outward appearance, isn't it? Are you strong enough? Are you smart enough? Are you famous enough? Are you doing all the right things as we see fit to be impressive in our eyes? It's all outward. That's what this is about. Being judged according to the flesh. It's all those things that Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, remember, God chose you, you weren't strong, you weren't smart." There were not many of nobility, Paul says. He kind of lists off all these things that are according to the flesh. And he reminds them, you're not good enough. God didn't choose you because you impressed him. Perhaps some of you have tried. It didn't work, let me tell you. I don't, I don't know what you felt if you tried to impress God with your living. Maybe you felt like you impressed him. You didn't. God is not impressed with your efforts. Because he's perfect. And everything that you do is touched by your sin. Everything that you do is touched by your inability, your limitations. Yet when you get into this game of judging people according to the flesh, you start believing and thinking and speaking like it's all about outward appearance. It's all about making good impressions by meeting man's expectations. If you haven't noticed, the world wants you to impress them. The world wants you to do what they want you to do according to their standards. They're judging you according to the flesh, with faulty standards, I should add. And Paul adds here in verse 16 that this is the way that he used to know Christ. He says, according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. What's he saying here? Well, he's not saying we met Jesus, we all met Jesus in person, I don't think that's what Paul is saying, he's not communicating about some experience of shaking hands with Jesus during his earthly ministry or anything like that. But what he's saying is that all people, before being converted to Christ, before seeing Jesus as Savior, we all judged him with worldly standards, didn't we? Before we recognized Jesus as the one true God who could save our souls, we all applied our faulty, fleshly, worldly standards to the person and work of Jesus, and you still encounter this today when you try to communicate the gospel message to somebody. There are many people who say, "Well, you know, Jesus, he was just some guy. He got some stuff right, he got some stuff wrong. He was just like a good teacher." And they stop there. Or the Jews, particularly at Paul's day, would say, "Well, he's not the Messiah. He died. He was crucified." Messiah is supposed to be king. Messiah is supposed to be killing the Romans and establishing his own kingdom. And look at this guy, he's weak. We saw him nailed to that cross. That's judging according to the flesh, isn't it? That's judging with worldly standards. For someone to look at Christ and say, he's not strong, you have no idea. He is God of the universe, the infinite creator. And so in the church, we don't... Take these old ways of judging according to the flesh and start applying them to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was rebuking these Corinthians who were judging him according to the flesh by the prompting of the false teachers. So in the world, we are judged according to the flesh, but in the church, we are not judged according to the flesh. We are gospel people. We are controlled by the love of Christ. That's what Paul said in verse 14. We're controlled by Christ's love. This is not the way we've come to know Christ, according to the flesh. We've come to know Christ in a different way. We've come to know the heart of Christ. And Paul is appealing to these Corinthians, judge with these standards, by the heart, not by the flesh. We, as Christians, are not impressed by Christ because of some worldly achievements of Jesus. We are impressed by Christ. We, we've been impressed by Christ because of his gentle and lowly heart, because of his love that led him to the cross, his obedience to the Father, the truth that, that just covered everything that he did. That has what has made the difference. And so we don't recognize each other in the church in a fleshly sense. We recognize each other in a spiritual sense. We don't look at the outward. We look at the inward. Because many people can look good on the outside, can't they? Jesus had a few run-ins with these people, the Pharisees and the scribes, those people who spent a lot of time, you know, waxing the outside of the cup, making it shiny enough, but the inside had cobwebs and whatever else that dust is that settles in the bottom of old mugs, that nasty stuff. They were really, really good about appearing as though they had their act together in front of men. And anybody can do that. Any of you in this room could do that, couldn't you? You could figure it out. But we don't judge one another on the outward. We look at the heart. We consider the heart. The task of the church is to appeal to the heart. That's where real fellowship is. Sadly, there are some churches that have never learned this. There are churches you can visit or churches you've been a part of that are just nothing more than glorified country clubs, right? Everybody's looking good on the outside. Everybody pats each other on the back. Everyone says the same things every week. How you doing? It's good. Off you go. That's it. That's not fellowship. At least that's not Christian fellowship. That's worldly stuff, isn't it? You're never, never getting to the heart of anything. You're never opening your heart to another person. You're never sharing your life with another person. You're never getting real with another person. And Paul, he, he has his heart open wide. That's the actual language he uses in this letter. We'll see in a moment. His heart's open wide to the Corinthians as he wants real relationship with them. Not this superficial stuff. And in our church today, we too should seek to know each other in heart. That's how we've come to know Christ, is in heart, by his heart, as we see what he has done on our behalf. Not an outward appearance, but these intangibles of love and grace and mercy and kindness and hope and faith that certainly lead to tangible actions, but it all starts in the heart. Look at the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, starting at verse 11. Look at what Paul says here in this same vein. 2 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you. O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as the children, Open wide to us also. That was Paul's appeal. These false teachers, they've stirred up your flesh, Corinthians. They've been judging me by the outward, and you've played right into their hand. Our hearts are open to you. Open up yourselves to us also. That was Paul's heart. And Paul could deliver such claims, he could make such appeals because of the gospel. Because as Christians, we are not of the world. And any time that we get off in our thinking, when our thinking goes into a worldly way, the gospel is our reset button, isn't it? When we get caught up in the cares, concerns of this life, when we get caught up in the pride of life, when we notice that our eyes have been a bit haughty, the gospel is that reset button. We go back and we preach the gospel to ourselves, or we have one of our faithful brothers and sisters do that. And that's what Paul gets to here in verse 17, where he says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul here refers to his conversion and their conversion. Becoming one who is in Christ. That's what that language means. To be in Christ is to be converted to Christ. In verse 16, the verse we were just looking at, Paul was talking about being in the flesh or not in the flesh. Being in the world or not being in the world, being in the church. But ultimately, it all has to do with whether you are in Christ or outside of Christ. In that final day, in the great judgment, there's only one thing that matters. Are you in Christ or not? That makes all the difference. That is the only question that matters. Because if you are in Christ, old things have passed away and all things are new. Isn't that good news? But if you are outside of Christ, you are still in your flesh. And that means you are still in your sin. If you have not been converted to Christ, you are under the judgment of God awaiting that great and terrible day when all will be exposed. The thoughts, the intentions, the motivations will be judged. And there is no protection. There's no shield of Jesus in that day if you are outside of Christ. Instead, you will face The fullness of the holy judgment of God. The wrath of His justice will confront the sinner in his or her flesh. But you can be converted to Christ today. You can become one who is in Christ today. When you believe in Him, when you entrust in that gospel message... You can be placed in Jesus Christ today and forevermore. You will never leave the protection of Christ. You will never fall outside of the propitiation or the atonement of Jesus Christ. His death will always be your death. His resurrection will always be your resurrection. His life will always be your life. If you are converted to Christ, there is no fear because perfect love has come. Perfect love enters your heart and casts out that fear. And in that great day, it will not be terrible for you. But in that day, you will be welcomed, you will be embraced by your Savior because you have trusted in what Jesus has done. And there are glorious realities that correspond to believing in Jesus. If you are here this morning as someone who has believed, someone who has trusted in Christ, someone who has Place the full weight of his trust in what Jesus has done, not bringing any of your own works to the table, not reducing what Jesus has done or who Jesus is in any way, but fully accepting, receiving, putting on Jesus. There are amazing realities for you that have started now. I just want to point out three. In verse 17, we see that as a believer in Jesus, you are a new creature, The believer in Christ has been born again, resulting in new life. Being born means you're entering into life. And that's what has happened to those who have trusted Jesus. You've been born again and you have new life. In Homer Kent's commentary, he says that the Christian is in vital union with Christ. And this makes him not merely a reformed person, but a new creation. Eternal life has been imparted to Him, not just a promised extension of earthly life. You have today, as a Christian, eternal life. Today, it's begun. You are in the midst of eternal life. This is, of course, an inner man reality. The outer man is wasting away. We've examined this in recent weeks. Yet, it's true that you have eternal life, and if you're a Christian... You are not who you were. You're a new creature. You are not that old creature. You are a new creation in Christ. Now, you need to hear this. You're still a creature. But you're a new creature. You're a new creation of God. This is the work of God the Spirit. We read in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. He washes, regenerates, causes new life to burst forth. God, the Holy Spirit, has created you anew. Christian, you've been created twice. You are a new creation in Christ. With that, we see the second thing in this verse is that the old things have passed away. Now, let's recognize, of course, this doesn't mean that sinful behaviors or sinful temptations dissolve upon belief in the gospel. Those sinful behaviors hang on, don't they? Those sinful temptations hang on. We recognize this. This happens in the Christian life. It's not that all of that goes away. That's not how this works. So what has passed away? Well, your old worldview has changed, hasn't hasn't it? You have a new worldview. Instead of enjoying sin, you now struggle with sin. The enjoyment of those things that God hates has faded away. And what has come is a struggle with sin, a pursuit of righteousness without which no man will see the Lord. And most wonderfully, we can say that our guilt has been removed. Uh, Above all else, what has faded away? The charge of guilt that was on your account because of what you've done. When you are in Jesus, when you've been converted to Christ, when you have truly believed, and that's what conversion is, it's belief, by grace, through faith, all of the charges that stood against you have been canceled. Colossians chapter 2 says, that record of debt was canceled on the cross, amen? It's gone. It's faded away. You, as a new creation, have seen these old things vanish. Your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. It's faded away. And thirdly, we see another glorious reality is the permanent residency of new things. Behold, the new has come. In the New American Standard, it says here in verse 17 that new things have come. That's the phrasing that's given. And have come is a a good way of saying that because the way that this is constructed based on the Greek perfect tense is that it's a past action that has present result. It's a past action that continues on, that has uh, indefinite reality that abides with us. So when it says here that the new things have come, it means at your conversion, new things have entered into life and they haven't faded away. These new things will never fade away. The new things will not slip out of your control. But God has brought them into your life to stay. They abide with you. I want to give you Three things. I have four in my notes. So I should... No, it's actually five. I don't know why I said three. I meant to say five. I have five things because there's one that's not in my notes that I want to mention. Five things that have come to stay if you are a Christian, okay? Five new things that have come. First is justification. At belief, when you first trust in the gospel, as I was just saying, your guilty record fades away. And what takes its place is a declaration of innocence. Before God, you are forever innocent. Before God, you will never have any sin accuse you. You will never have no legitimate accusation because God has said you are innocent now and forevermore. He has taken away your sin and in its place, He has given you His very righteousness. So when He sees you, He sees a saint. You don't feel very saintly sometimes, right? That's good. It reminds you that your righteousness isn't your own. Your righteousness comes from God, and you are holy in His eyes forevermore because of what Christ has done. So that's first. It has come to stay. Secondly is this new worldview. We have a new worldview that abides with us. That starts, of course, with the gospel. We recognize the good news of Jesus Christ is the best and most important news that anyone could ever have. That's the cornerstone of our worldview the way we interpret the news at night, the way that we have relationship with our family members, it's all viewed through the lens of the gospel. It's our new worldview. What's most important is that Jesus has come, died, rose again on our behalf and that people are saved by grace through faith. And out of that worldview, we continue to see the choices we make in this life as being sin versus righteousness. We we view actions in this life that way. And we want to put sin to death and we want to uphold righteousness. We want to be instruments in God's hands to establish His will on the face of the earth. It's a new worldview. Thirdly, we see slavery to Christ as a new reality of the Christian life that abides with us. We are no longer slaves to sin. You used to be a slave to sin. No longer. Your new reality that remains through Your life, your existence, is that you are a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. The power of sin has been broken in your life. You're not a slave to sin to obey its lusts, the slaves of the flesh. You are now a slave to Jesus, and you are free now to be fully devoted to Him with your entire life. That's a new reality for the Christian that abides. Fourthly, the one that's not in my notes, is of course the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this applies to everything I've been saying so far. With the coming of the Holy Spirit entering into our lives to indwell us, to fill us, we are now led into righteousness. We are now led as slaves of Jesus. We are able to obey His commands because of the fruit of the Spirit as the Spirit comes into our hearts and brings about obedience to Jesus. And He will not leave us. It's a new reality. And fifthly, our ambition. We have a new ambition To please God. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago in verse 9 of chapter 5. Paul says, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Our ambition in life is not to please man. But the new ambition we have as Christians is being sold out for Christ. This means that we therefore no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, as Paul has been saying. But we look at everyone, everything, according to the gospel. And it's our ambition to please God, not to please man. Our standing as Christians must affect our state. Our position must affect our practice, you could say. You know, there's a difference between these things. God has declared you innocent and righteous if you were in Christ. He said it. You are His forever. There's no undoing this bond that God has brought together. However, day to day, you have a lot of choices to make, don't you? And this position that God has given you as His child has to have bearing on your practice. Your standing before Him as an innocent, blameless saint in Christ should cause you to live saintly. It should have an an effect that happens in the real world, not just in your dreams, but in our actual interaction with one another. Our standing has to have bearing on our state. Paul is appealing to these Corinthians to have spiritual sensitivity in the way that they live. God has made you a new creation, Corinthians. Why are you judging me according to the flesh? So for us here today, if you wanted to hear some some application to this, God has made you a new creation. So why are you still judging others with worldly judgment? If you are. It's something to think about. Why are you still pursuing things on your own power instead of relying on the power of God? Why, Why are you going out and doing things and then when it doesn't work, then you pray. If you're a new creation in Christ, God says, pray first. First we pray. If, if you're a new creation in Christ, why are, you, why are you still fighting with your spouse over stuff that doesn't matter? Why are you still ruining your kids? If you're a new creation in Christ... You must bring to bear these spiritual realities. You must have spiritual sensitivity. And you're able to because God has given you a new way of thinking and He's given you Himself by way of the Holy Spirit. That you would walk into newness of life. Not that you would continue on judging and living according to the flesh. Yet all of this hinges on the gospel, right? Right? If you're not a believer in Jesus, none of this makes sense. This sermon isn't going to hit home if you're not a believer in Jesus. But if you're someone who has been converted to Christ, this application is for you. Your state of life, your state of being, your practice must be affected by the position God has given you, by the truths, the realities that are found in His Word. And today we're reminded, aren't we, of that central message of Christianity, that Jesus died in our place for our sins. And so as we go into this time of communion, taking the bread and the juice that represent the broken body and the blood poured out, I want you to think about if you are in Christ. Because if you are not in Jesus, this memorial meal is not for you. This is for Christians who have come together to say, we are in Christ. We want to remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out on our behalf. And we're not here to like look and see who's taking it, who's not. I know that that might be something that comes into your head. You don't need to do that, okay? Um, But we need to know we're doing this together as Christians. We need to know that this is serious, that... We have a warning in the Bible that the reason why God has judged was actually the Corinthians. The reason why God judged some of the Corinthians harshly by causing them to be sick or to die was because they abused this meal that the Lord Jesus gave us. We don't get the same kind of warning with baptism. I think that's kind of interesting, isn't it? He gives us that kind of warning with communion. And so we have to be sensitive to that. There has to be spiritual sensitivity here. This... Meal is for all Christians. You don't have to be a member of this church. This could be your first Sunday. But if you're a Christian, this is for you. And so I want us to consider carefully in our hearts if we are in Christ. And if so, it is a joy for us to have this memorial meal together, isn't it? So what I'll do now is I'll pray. And then we'll have the music play while we form a line here to my left. And we'll come through and we'll each grab a cup. We'll each grab a piece of bread and then hang on to it. Go back to your seat and hang on to it because at the end, we'll take it together, symbolizing that we are unified in Christ. We're doing this together as a church body. And so I'll pray now and then we'll we'll do that, okay? Father, we thank you for what you have done to bring us to yourself. We thank you for the body of Jesus broken for us and his blood poured out for our sins. We ask your blessing on this time of remembrance. And uh, we come to you knowing that we are always uh, in need of the gospel. And so have us to be reminded anew today. Have this to hit home in our hearts, to be refreshed by gospel love, the love of Jesus. Help us to do this seriously with great thankfulness in our hearts. God, we love you and we thank you for this sacrifice of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.